Welcome to another episode of How to Make It in Africa. This is your host, Fadil Jawi. This podcast brings you some of the best stories of African entrepreneurship. African entrepreneurs have their own great successes, and they will be on this show to share them. We have in-depth conversations with entrepreneurs, creatives, and other changemakers. Together with our exciting guests, we explore and dissect their motivations, their challenges, and the strategies to succeed across Africa and to build businesses that scale regionally and internationally. Today's guest took on the Herculean task of digitizing African healthcare from the ground up. Sit back, relax, and I hope you thoroughly enjoy this episode as much as I did. Hi, everyone. Our guest today is Adegoke Olubusi. Goke is co-founder and CEO of the health tech startup Helium Health, based in Lagos, Nigeria. He's a Johns Hopkins University alumnus and was previously an engineer at eBay, PayPal, and Goldman Sachs in the U.S. He served on the founding team of Africa's leading social network with 30 million-plus users and received multiple honors and awards, including from Forbes, Chevron, Northrop Grumman, and Lockheed Martin. Goke, welcome to the show, and great to have you today. Happy to be on, Fidel. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. It's uh, awesome to have you. I would like to rewind the story back to 2016. How did you and your co-founders come up with the idea of Helium Health, and, and how did it all start? So what really happened was, at the start of 2016, I had been studying and researching on the healthcare crisis in Africa for the prior periods. So at the start of 2016, we were very keen on the need for data, more transparent, more granular, more thorough data on healthcare in Africa. We're Mm -hmm. very keen on having that because we started to realize that at the foundation of the issues that we were facing across the continent in healthcare was a lack of data. And I'm saying on a micro level within the healthcare facilities and healthcare providers themselves, and on a macro level, when you start thinking about aggregating this data as a local state or federal government. So we could see that the core of a lot of the issues we're facing was a lack of data. The governments couldn't make good decisions. The private facilities couldn't figure out how to fund their facilities or how to expand. And even foreign investors looking at the African market and the opportunity, deep opportunity in healthcare, not enough data to actually make any decision. Pharma companies mm. don't, don't do any research or clinical trials. <laughs> so yeah. it almost just feels felt like the continent was dark. So we started to see, look for the need for how to surface this data. And what we thought we'd do at the time, actually, we weren't thinking we would start a medical record software company or build all the technology we've built now. We thought we would find a lot of good local players that we could integrate with for the sake of gathering this data and starting to surface them and make them actionable to the different stakeholders in healthcare. However, we just realized that data was not being collected at the point of care, which means at, you know if you go within facilities, clinics, hospitals, tertiary facilities, data was not being collected there because they weren't digital. They had not, everything was still happening on paper. And that's when we decided to start Helium Health And our first mission was to establish a medical records and hospital management information system that could serve as a good first step, a good data collection tool, first of all, for these facilities, um, as we then start to surface 
the value of the data to the providers and the facilities themselves, and then on a wider scale from a public health perspective. That's interesting because basically what you're saying is you have to start building the databases from the ground up. And I think I've, I've seen numbers like, and correct me if I'm wrong, 90% of records are still on paper. Is that, is that right? That's, that's correct. There's a long way to go, but we definitely have a good head start in getting there. And when we say on paper, we mean not just, it's not just the medical records, the processes as well. So many things are on paper. And what that means is you have insights that you're unable to surface. You go to a large tertiary facility, you find tens and sometimes hundreds of thousands of paper files there. All the insights there, all the research, all the things that are unique to us, no one's able to dig into them to discover them, and they just die away there. And we're starting to change that, and we're happy about the progress we're making so far. I mean, this is incredibly inefficient, to say the least, but, you know, the disruption of the healthcare space has been slower than in other industries, but not only in Africa, also in more advanced economies. What yeah. has been your experience in convincing healthcare providers to move to digital, especially at the beginning? Okay, I would say, okay, so at the beginning time, okay, that was probably the, I think getting our first five to 10 clients was you know, likely the hardest task the company would ever face <laughs> because mm, yeah, there is sure. first the aspect where if you look at the healthcare space and the healthcare you know, community, it, it's like it's its own little ecosystem, its own little network where they don't tend to like outsiders much. Mm. <laughs> and that's why you notice that you often don't find people say, we're moving from finance to healthcare, or we're moving from yeah. oil and gas to health or energy. You know, no, no one really yeah. goes to healthcare because it's like you spend you know, a decade of your life working to become a doctor, working to get licensed. It's a whole community that's very unique. So breaking into that community as a bunch of young, and that's also another factor as well, right? We're, we're decades younger than the average age. Yeah. It's like Helium <laughs> Health, who are you guys again? Like, never heard Exactly. Of <laughs> like, who, who are these kids in our hospital? What are they trying to do? No, and you're, you know, it's not even a joke. That was the oh. reaction Lots of hospital owners would look at us and say, wow, it's like their children are trying to talk to them about how to run tough. their hospital. And that, that was, you know, definitely one of the more difficult parts. There was the yeah. perspective that healthcare is a kind of community where if you're not a doctor, if you're not, you know, you're not welcome there. And that's entirely wrong because that, that is what we need to change. And I'll give mm. you one more point in this regard. Healthcare in Africa, and this is one of the core issues, is it's not being treated as a business. Still being seen as a social service. And that's one of the reasons, that's one of the core issues that we have. When you have people setting up hospitals for sentimental reasons, because I, you know, because I'm a doctor, my father's a doctor, we have this family hospital, and they're not thinking about scale and about how do you actually optimize for scale? How do you optimize value? How do you increase the, you know, the things you would if you were running a, a traditional business, they're not thinking about those factors, everyone yeah. suffers, especially yeah. when they're not being held accountable to those standards. So it's, I mean, the earlier parts of the company, it was an impossible task. And what that meant for us is that we spent every day, and this is what we do, we would get in the car, we'd type, I mean, we didn't have any connections with like hospital and Google Maps, and we would go hospital after hospital after hospital. We did this for several, several, several months. We, I mean, we built relationships with hundreds of different providers across different parts of Africa. That was our life. And uh, a lot crazy. of the insights that we gain in the process is how we run the organization now. But somehow you're also educating the stakeholders, no? Because when oh, you meet absolutely. them and so on, right? Absolutely. Um, we actually like to say now, and we don't say ourselves as individuals, we say our technology 
knows yeah. your hospital better than you do. <laughs> we like to tell the client that it knows it knows you and your hospital better than you do. And that's the goal of technology. That yeah. is the whole goal. It's supposed to be an exactly. enabler. And you know, there's so much more that technology will can do that people just can't imagine. People would not have been able to think of until they get to see it live. And I'll get to share some of that with you um, as we talk further on this sure. podcast. Sure. Based on what you told me now, and, and, and based on the research I've done on on the company, you know, Helium yeah. Health started as an electronic medical records platform, essentially. Yeah. But tell us more about the company today, i.e., you know, what it does, the solutions it provides, um, the clients, the market it covers. Absolutely. So we started out, you know, building, and this wasn't, like I mentioned, right, it wasn't our initial thesis. We never thought we'd build an electronic medical records platform. In fact, when we started, some of my good friends happened to run some of the largest electronic medical records platform in the world and in the U.S. And they all mm. said, the one thing you should not do, Goke, I, we beg of you, is do not start an EMR. <laughs> because <laughs> these are some of the more complex software fields. It's a very incredibly far to build. But we understood that we needed to build one that could work for Africa, that could work mm. for our market. We needed to reimagine the way it would work. How do you... I mean, you can't build something for Africa that requires that without considering offline um, compatibility, offline first approach, because mm. power is not a stable factor, right? And internet connectivity is not something that's reliable. You can't build something that requires complex training or uses complex language or experiences. It's not going to scale. So we understood we needed to do that. And we uh, spent a lot of time building that in the initial phase of the company. But now we've essentially scaled to really focus on, I would say, three core pieces of technology and solutions. First, it is a full provider management suite. So it's not just electronic medical records now. It's a hospital management information system. It is a teleclinic. It is a appointments, medical appointments booking platform. We have the whole full suite there. And then on the second hand, we have a suite of financial solutions for healthcare. This includes our Helium Pay solution, where we process payments for uh, billing and payments for um, providers across our network. So if you went, if your patient walked into a, ho a hospital that uses Helium and they wanted to pay with their card, their mobile money, USSD, they'd instantly be able to do that with Helium Pay. And we even okay. use work with the government with Helium Pay now as well. So if you're, for example, paying for a COVID test, which is now mandatory in order to fly in or out of Nigeria mm. internationally, you would be you paying through Helium Pay as well. And the final piece, and, and then on that piece as well is the credit we provide. We have a Helium credit platform where we provide instant finance into hospitals on our network. And we do that leveraging the data we have um, on them automatically through the system as well. And I would say the third piece of the company is our public health focus, where beyond the technology we provide for the private sector and the public sector for medical records and provider management and financing, there's a deep aspect of our work, which is around public health. Things like the COVID response tool that we built for the Nigerian government, which this year, this is 2020, which serves as an end-to-end -end solution managing emergency response. A lot of things like that that we do because this is a public health conversation and we don't believe that we would have delivered on our promise for digitizing healthcare except the public sector and the public health aspect is covered as well. So that really is one of the core places where we draw our attention. I mean, you, you're literally at, at the core of, uh, of the storm, you know, uh, when it comes to the current uh, health crisis. But we'll talk about, you know, COVID-19 a bit later on. I, I just wanted to <laughs> yes. get back to, you know, you mentioned finance and credit and I find that 
quite interesting. So when you yeah. say providing credit to uh, stakeholders yeah. and, and to hospitals, is it to uh, to purchase equipment, for example? Is it like, you know... Uh, oh, yes. I would and... say, absolutely. I would say the core, one of the core request is equipment, asset purchase, equipment um, acquisition, whether you're trying to buy a new CT scan, you're trying to buy new, you know, different types of equipment, ultrasounds, or, which facilities need. We're able to provide it. But I'll just give you an example here. Mm-hmm. You could see a facility that has a spike in, let's say they have a lot of pregnant women showing up in the hospital. What they have to do is because they don't have, they can't afford from their own capital, they don't have the you know capital to afford, let's say an ultrasound machine, for example, they end up referring that all the patients, all the pregnant women to a lab nearby. But then there's the additional work and the additional stress on the patient as well, the additional burden, especially in Africa. The patient has to get there. You know, they have to go back for the results. The lab may not be digital, all these things. And then there is a lost revenue that the, that the provider could have gained if they had the equipment. So imagine us, the partner, we automatically can see your revenues. We, we know your numbers because it's, the system knows your numbers. And we also understand we can see your volume of pregnant patients. These are real people, you know? So we're able yeah. to automatically marry that data and using an algorithm can tell us and tell you as well, here is you have this much of a line of credit so you can purchase this equipment or whatever equipment you need. And what that translates to is increased revenue and more value for the facility. But the problem is the hospitals and the providers do not have many sources to turn to. The alternative besides what we provide and what a few other partners like the Medical Credit Fund, who we work with as well, do is going to the banks. And no mm. one likes banks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the amount of paperwork you'd fill out and the number of things. That, and they always need you to collateralize things you don't have. Right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Which yeah. even gets even more ridiculous. Like Over-collateralize as well. Over-collateralize. Exactly. Oh, some people even, I, the, the one I find, and a lot of providers reach out to us to tell us this. When I find the craziest is when people are asking for cash collateral. Can Which sometimes is equal to the amount that you're requesting. Oh and I God. think if I had the amount, then why would I be here? Why would I do that in the first place? <laughs> and exactly. it's, that's the way it is in Africa. And in that's most crazy. of Africa, there is not that good credit infrastructure. So we're very happy to be able to unlock yeah. the possibilities um, no. that come out of this. That's a great angle. And since we're talking about financing, let's talk a little bit more about the financing of the company in the first place. So what were sure. the initial sources of funding for the startup? Absolutely. So I would say, first of all, we were fortunate, and this is uh, one of, I, th- I would say, one of the important things as well in starting a company in Africa, because this is my third company. My first one I started with one of my co-founders for Helium, actually, who we also went to high school together <laughs> with, and we're pretty successful with, with that in that regard. But I would say one of the fortunate things we had was that we were able to seed some of our own funding and covering the initial research, you know, the initial cost of the company. However, the other thing that helped us um, in order to be able to raise a seed round was Y Combinator. If we didn't have the Y Combinator access, and I'm saying this you know, with complete honesty here, there are not many investors looking to actually invest with the capital to deploy in most of Africa. It's mm. not like the Valley, it's not like the US, and I've you know, lived and worked in all these places. You actually don't have many people deploying capital. A lot of people claiming they're raising funds without actually investing in any companies. Or you have people who are looking for deals, which is, you know, by nature, something that I would say almost like culturally an African thing to do. But you don't see a lot of people trying to genuinely back and support founders in the hardest phase. 
And yeah. one of the greatest fortunes we had was Y Combinator being able to see, and this is again, Silicon Valley with the limited context they have, being able to see that there was a need for the technology we're providing, especially, and, and that's because it's foundational infrastructure. If you don't have foundational infrastructure, then you can't build everything else. Yeah. There isn't a foundation for you know things to be running digitally and for things to be connected and for data. Then yeah. you can't build on top of that. So they were able to see that opportunity. That yeah. was invaluable, and that helped us signal to other investors to then join the round. And that is also one of the core parts about fundraising, the signaling aspect in Africa, because a lot of people, you know, do this for clout and for different reasons, and they just they tend to be followers rather than leaders in targeting mm. the course when you think about investors you know we ended up being fortunate by having a lot of people join the round because of Y Combinator's interest yeah i mean i mean it's a it's a chicken and egg problem i mean if everybody's a follower there then who's uh, who's the leader um yeah. but uh, but luckily as you said you participated into the Y Combinator program and and for people yes. listening it's it's a prestigious accelerator based in the west coast uh, in the us and from my understanding, you, you went there in 2017, right? That's correct. And so in addition to, to financing, and that helped a lot in scaling up Helium Health, yeah. what's the rest of the experience? I think people would be interested to hear more about uh, Y Combinator experience and, and what other doors it, it, it opened to you. Absolutely. I would say, first of all, what you get is a community of like-minded founders. And that is by far why Combinator is most valuable asset. It's not the funding they give or <laughs> the help into fundraise. It's the tapping into a network of, uh, you know, maybe I think right now it'd probably be about 15 plus years or maybe 13, 14 plus years of exceptional founders like yourself who have worked in every possible field. So if we ever go in the internal forum for Y Combinator, I could look up, I mean, if you threw out a topic, I could look it up on the forum now and you'd see conversations and these conversations go on daily. It's a network of founders supporting each other. I think that's the most valuable thing. Interesting. If there is any introduction you need, whether it's to an investor, to a client, any type of issue you're facing, because they have been hundreds, actually now thousands, more than, I believe there are more than 2,000 Y Combinator companies so far over the last 15 years. Because there have been thousands of founders, just like yourself, who have likely gone through it in different ways. Different, they've, they've scaled different countries, they've faced yeah. tax issues, and they've hired yeah. lawyers and hired teams and scaled from zero. I mean, you have everyone from Airbnb and all these bigger Dropbox who have scaled from one to you know, 5,000. They have yeah. all this advice and insights and access that is invaluable. I'd say at the core, that's what you get from a, from, a, from a platform accelerator like Y Combinator. The other things that also definitely help is the actual mentors and leadership there. They're exceptionally smart people who have, you know, just incredible insights and also incredible access to investors as well. And that also helps you fundraise because at the end of it all as well, there's a need for funding to actually mm. scale the vision and get things done. And Y Combinator has been exceptional in making that happen, especially for African startups. I mean, it's it's basically from what you're saying, it's intangibles. So you have information and so on, and the network yeah. and mentorship is a big deal as well. I think I keep I keep hearing that, you know, that dimension again and again uh, among entrepreneurs. Absolutely, absolutely. And and did you have to, uh, you know, let's let's use the, the usual uh, buzzwords. Did you have to pivot at any point? I would say yes, and I'll also say I'd be surprised if there weren't a company, a startup <laughs> that had yeah, not. Yeah, they did not. 
because your hypothesis is always different than reality. And the true test of, I would say, leadership and your agility as a startup and as, as a founding team is your ability to adapt. So l- when we started out, our theory, we, got, we didn't even think we'd be building an EMR. Look at us now. Not yeah. only did we build an EMR, we've scaled beyond that. Yeah. Uh, when we started out, we thought we'd be selling towards certain crop of facilities that changed as well probably every thesis we every hypothesis we had changed but the good thing is we know we ran this in a normal scientific process where we had a hypothesis we tested it out and then we listened and we what's the word adapted ourselves to it Mm. so we pivot all the time but fundamentally our goal still at the core remains the exact same how do we help africa and emerging markets become more technology and data-driven in healthcare, whatever it takes to get there. Yeah, you stick, you stick to your vision, basically, and then yep. you discover the unknown unknowns as, as you go and as you interact with, uh, with the markets, basically. Absolutely. You know, you talked earlier about really the core of um, the company and the, yeah. and the strengths, obviously, which is, which is gathering data, and that's, that's yeah. extremely beneficial to all the stakeholders, to uh, yeah. hospitals, patients as well. At the same time, uh, privacy has been a huge topic as of late, yeah. you know, across yeah. tech platforms and attracting public scrutiny. And this is more of an issue when it comes to people's health. So how are you handling this? How are we handling the topic of privacy? So I would say this, the countries that we operate in, and most of Africa, do not have uh, any form of sophisticated laws around healthcare data or healthcare privacy. A lot of them are just starting to catch up. Most of them don't even have a good framework for it. So I would say we do two things. First of all, we ensure we meet global standards for healthcare privacy, healthcare interoperability, healthcare security, healthcare data security. We meet global standards. So we go out of our way to ensure everything we do uses the global coding standards ICD-10 or using FHIR formats. We are you know, meet in HIPAA compliance. We're not required to do these things, but we do them because we're, we're building a global organization and there is a responsibility to each patient to ensure that there's that level of security on there. And second, we then start to work with the local legisla- legislators in each of the countries we operate in in helping them draft and craft. Essentially, we're lobbying to help them draft and craft their e-health strategy, their data privacy strategy, and to ensure that the standards that they hold up to are meaningfully what is best for them and they mm. don't end up doing what would be a copy-paste of foreign laws. As you know, that is yeah. predictably what pe- most people would do. This is what the yeah. U.S. does. This is what the U.K. does. Why don't we copy-paste this? No. The U.S. isn't even happy about HIPAA and their, yeah. <laughs> their standards. The U.K. is, and the, most of Europe is you know, hands in the air about GDPR. Write something that is relevant to your own country and your own context and your own people. Don't copy it. And that requires that you understand it, which tends to mean that you need people in the room who actually do have a good understanding of it internationally and locally. Unfortunately for us, we get to, you know, serve, be these people in Nigeria and a lot of the other countries we operate in. And we also bring a lot of transparency to the process as well. I would, you know, I'll, I'll confess on this call, on this podcast, that it is quite expensive to maintain global standards and global sure. privacy issues while serving a market that's paying you in you know, local currency that is yeah. not global currency. However, yeah. it is a responsibility that we have and we're happy to continue to uphold. 
Uh, you know, at the end of the day, these are the things that pay off. Number one, because, you know, and from the looks of it, I'm sure you're a principled person and, you, and your team yes. are, are principled people. That's number one. And number two, it is, in fact, in the long run and for the sake of sustainability of the business, it is the right yeah. thing to do to be on the client and on the patient side. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about you now and, and, and your role in, uh, in the company, because there's the company and there's you, the co-founder. We're used to narratives of startup CEOs on covers of business magazines, giving an image of a glamorous life, yachts and uh, private jets. So what does your um, typical workday really look like? As a look CEO? like, okay, that's, that's an excellent question. <laughs> covers of magazines <laughs> on black <laughs> You know what? You know what I found because I do, you know, happen to have a lot, you know, a lot of friends who are fellow founders as well. A lot of them have also been on uh, covers of magazines and posts. Yeah. Is that uh, it feels like almost none of us, almost none of us, uh, do that, spend our time on that as much as uh, people would think. That instance where we took that picture or we, you know, wrote that uh, interview. Yeah. It's probably the only instance we spent in the last several months um, <laughs> not doing our work. And that is the reality of it. You know, when it's I two seconds of glamour. Two seconds of glamour. Se- literally two seconds and then a decade of, yeah. of work. Of pain. Um, yeah. Exactly. And you, and you, because uh, the work in itself has to be fulfilling in itself in order to do it. Nothing else externally can glamorize it. So really, when I think about it, when I wake up in the morning, you know, and I'll, I'll give you a quick example here. When the lockdown started uh, earlier in the year, when COVID started to become a heavier conversation around February and, and March, mm-hmm. I had a sprint where I had 100 days where I worked 14 hours every day. <laughs> it was 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day for 100 days. That's horrific. <laughs> I, I, you know, I still can't even... <laughs> I can't even imagine how we went through that, but we needed it at the time. So yeah. a lot of things we're doing was building COVID response technology. We needed to understand it, understand what pe- everyone wasn't thinking about. So that's what the real life looks like. It is a hundred days of fourteen-hour days every day, and then maybe a tech crunch article. That's <laughs> um, what it takes. That, <laughs> that's what it yeah, takes. That covers it, and that, that's what it takes because what is fulfilling in itself is the value of the work we're doing. Nothing external could really fulfill that. It's just a lot of work. Yeah, it's important that people hear that and, and really understand it. And, you know, another, another side is, is a bit more of a, a longer-term aspect, and it's about hiring people. So one of the yeah. most difficult tasks for an entrepreneur, especially when the company is expanding and you need to also hire top executives, is choosing the right person for the right role. So what do you look yep. for when you hire new people? Absolutely. I love, I love this question. So first of all, by default, there's the competence topic, but I would say finding competent people is the easiest part, is the easier part of the process. Finding people who are competent on paper is the easier part. The core thing we look for is shared values. That's key. Do we share the same values here? And I'll give you an example. If, if the person is trying to make a lot of money quickly, I would, and we were very transparent people, I would not advise you to work in healthcare in Africa. And I'll tell you, I would even give you recommendations to other great places. Shared values are important because because of the kind of work we do and the fact that it has real life impact on real people, 
we cannot afford to be distracted or to, um, what's the word, or to not think long-term, to put our own short-term goals, our own short-term gratification over the long-term vision that we need to establish. And it's very important that everyone on the team is incentivized and aligned to that, both personally and professionally. And that means that there are a lot of people who would be great to work at Helium Health, who would be great to solve the problems that we're you know, tackling within the organization. However, they're not the good fit for it, and they should they should not work in Helium Health. They should not you know um, apply or take an offer because they're not a good fit for it. There is the need for shared values, and some of the values that we care the most about are simplicity, transparency you know, a lot of openness, a lot of things that aren't uncommon when you're doing business in Africa. We publish our numbers, our revenue numbers, our cost numbers, our expenses, salary, all those things internally. Everyone in the organization knows them. We, you know, there's, there are no walls mm. because, you know, it's a shared goal that we're being accountable towards. We know the number of patients that were, you know, records we've digitized. We, we, these are things that are very important to us. So we, we like that kind of system and we try to ensure that people share that same type of value. And there's also the need for them to have some kind of genuine reason to care deeply about the continent and emerging mm. markets, because yeah. if they don't, it's very hard work. If they don't, they will get scared away, <laughs> yeah. which tends yeah. to be a trend uh, with a lot of people. Fortunately for us, I would say, I don't even think anyone in the leadership team has left the organization, which is, you know, which is insane, you know, that we've been running it for a few years and everyone's even more excited and the team's been scaling. It's because we really got that shared values part right. And think about it because, you know, why the match is important. That's because you may have to work together for 20 years uh, in, oh, in yeah. the future. So it's not Absolutely. just about solving the problem now. It's about Absolutely. all those coming years and you have to be together working every day. Absolutely. Absolutely. A, a, a different uh, dimension is is as important as, uh, as the teams is, uh, is funding. And uh, recently, Helium Health raised a total of $10 million, congratulations, first of all, in uh, Series A funding led by top global investors. How does that change your perspective as a CEO? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I would say it, it, you know, it doesn't, or, or at least it shouldn't. It really shouldn't change your perspective, and I'll tell you why. The funding that you get is not your company's revenue. It is not a real indicator of success, though it is an indicator of progress, progress going on, but it's not necessarily an indicator of success because what $10 million means is that we just gave up a huge chunk of the company in exchange for cash to scale the company. That really is what it translates to. So what that means for us is two things. First of all, the need to have the internal processes to support scale, because if we're raising, if you're raising in a venture-backed manner, then it's about scaling the work you're doing. So it was it, what happened is for us is a deeper internal need to ensure, first of all, that our processes that we do have the framework to scale. That's one. Two, that we do have the people who are fit to support the scale. And three, that everyone is laser focused on executing that. That really is what it means. Um, I, I don't necessarily see, um, even though it's a great milestone and we celebrated it internally because it, is, it does take a lot of work, especially in Africa, to raise funding. As you know, it, I think it doesn't necessarily change my perspective. It just gives me a deeper responsibility and accountability on all these things. And that just means better processes, better focused people, and just like laser focused on our goals. 
Yeah. Otherwise, just keep going. Keep going, precisely. Keep, keep going. So since we're discussing healthcare, we can't ignore the obvious coronavirus, of course. Right. <laughs> so how has COVID-19 impacted the business in the past months and uh, your sector more broadly? Definitely. So I would say what has happened with healthcare in Africa this year, it was partially, I would say, COVID-19, but also, you know, its impact, its environmental impact, et cetera. Things like uh, lockdowns or airports were shut down in most of the countries in Africa, if not even all of them. What that meant was for the first time since likely in a place like Nigeria, the first time since likely military rule, people could not just leave the country for healthcare. Think about that. You know what the middle class and the upper middle class and the upper class rely on across Africa? Healthcare in India and in the US and the UK Mm. and Germany, that is what the entire healthcare sector relies on. Why build cancer centers and why build, why invest in our own resources when I can hop on a flight and be in London in five hours? That's been the mindset. Think about it. The politicians, the legislators who write the laws that defund healthcare, that has been Mm. their mindset. For the first time, ever in their lifetimes, they had to face the reality that a lot of them might have died and a lot of them did die because they couldn't leave the country. Think about mm, it. Yeah. You, you've cancer, you need to pee, you need certain kinds of care. You, you, know, you thought you could always leave the country and here you are stuck. And yeah. that was a harsh reality for a lot of them. They yeah. started setting up isolation centers everywhere, private isolation centers. Most of this was rich people trying to ensure they're protected in case things go south. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What it translates to is, first of all, the first, for the first time, people have the reality to say, oh, crap, we need to invest and double down in our healthcare sector because we might not always have the luxury of relying on others, as this year proved. And what that translates to is a deeper need and deeper investments in healthcare, a deeper focus on healthcare. And I just hope that's going to be the case going forward. And we've seen that on a business standpoint. A lot of the partnerships, conversations, things we've been saying for years, suddenly everyone comes back to the table open and ready to listen. (laughs) And we've been saying these same things for years. So I'm hoping this is going to be a shift in the right direction. And as a business as well, we were able to support the private sector, launching telemedicine, virtual care software, delivering of of care to patients in different remote areas using technology, working with the government and building the full end-to-end emergency response technology. All these things, we're able to support the country and the region uh, specifically through that means. But this year has been an eye-opener for the entire continent, and Mm. we hope it's going to be continue to push us all in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, let's hope that people finally uh, admit the reality and start finally investing in, in healthcare, but, but really Absolutely. meaning it. Absolutely. Now, thinking ahead, Goke, what big plans do you have for the future of the company? Ooh, big plans for the future. This is, you know, one of the most exciting parts for me. When yeah. I think about Helium and our mission, it really is a vision, a vision of technology and data-driven healthcare. What that means in each country is a little, slightly different. In each African country, it's slightly different from the other. And what we get to do is operationalize, establish, you know, give birth to these vision in as many countries as emerging, emerging market countries as possible. That's what we get to do. And we're mm. very excited about that. We're already expanding deeply into North Africa and East Africa, Kenya, Morocco, Algeria, um, and all these countries as well. We're currently, we've primarily been focused more heavily in West Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, 
Liberia. But as we expand into these countries, we consolidate the efforts, we spur the same vision because it's, again, it's, we, we, we hire local teams. We want them to understand the problem from the perspective of their country. We then tailor solutions that we have you know, to that. It's a very like local vision that we're giving birth to. That's the exciting plan for us. And our, you know, our future just means scaling up the work we're doing and getting closer to data and technology-driven healthcare. And I would like to look back in, you know, maybe it's going to be five, 10 years from now or even longer and to be able to say, you know, we were able to contribute to the digitization of healthcare and look at how much better lives are, you know, because of this. I really wish that for you, Goke, because you've been doing uh, incredible work. And um, Thank you so much. And the, the very last question I have for you, so that I don't uh, hold you any, uh, any longer. Um, yeah. What advice would you give young people starting the entrepreneurial path, just like you a few years ago? Ooh, what advice would I give? Okay, I'd say two things. I would say, first of all, listen. Listen, 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 listen to everyone, listen to the customers. I'm not saying, you know, do what, whatever they tell you, but I am saying listen. <laughs> listen yeah. for what people are not listening to. Listen for what people are not paying attention to. If we didn't spend, I mean, months of our lives just going hospital to hospital, sitting with doctor after doctor, actually understanding their problems, not what someone wrote on a blog post on the internet or what perspective we had from reading reports from the World Bank or the WHO, we would have been screwed. Listen, that's the first mm. thing. Listen to everyone. That way you can form a thesis or a hypothesis that is truly unique. And I will I tell you, you probably will be right with that thesis because you would you'd have gained so much insight from listening that you will be birthing a perspective that's different than people would have imagined. That's the first part. The second part, which is more important than ever when you're doing business in Africa as a founder, is be bold be bold and it's going to be an impossible task every time around i mean i'm a third time founder i thought it was going to be easier <laughs> i thought fundraising would be easier this time and scaling would be easier never gets any easier so you got to be bold you got to be bold and bold to everyone because you are fighting a, a a very unique set of challenges and it takes a certain level of uh, insanity <laughs> as yeah. a person it's a level of like crazy determination to really push things in the direction you want it to go. And if you push it, if you're consistent, if you listen, you, you know, you work and you keep boldly pushing, you know, and next to no time, people will begin to gather and listen as well. And a lot of the, the things that you wanted to happen will start to happen. And that would be my advice to founders who are starting this journey. I mean, Goke, these were valuable insights. Uh, you're a very upbeat person. Uh, it has been a Thank pleasure so talking much. to you today. And I sincerely wish you and the company all the best. Thank you so much, Fidel. Thank you so much for having us on. And to the audience listening, if you want to learn more about Helium Health, visit heliumhealth.com in one word. Thanks for listening. And until next time. Hey, everyone, again, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on your favorite social media. That's it for now. I'm Father Jawi. And you've been listening to How to Make It in Africa.